Today, the message is entitled, The Believer's Missionary DNA. The Believer's Missionary DNA. And when you know that, after I entitled the message, uh, a book was released, which I haven't read, but I've heard a synopsis of it, that makes the argument that all believers are not missionaries. The point of the book, as far as I can tell, is that missionaries are only, are the ones, technically, are the sent ones, the ones that go on a specific mission. They have a special commission to go across borders, across oceans, to different cultures, and evangelize the unreached, disciple new believers, help plant churches, uh, which will then be used, right, by the local indigenous churches, the local people in their culture to plant other churches. So right away, within the DNA of the churches that a missionary plants should be the, the, the thinking that they'll plant more churches. Because many of these places are very, very unreached. For the most part, I, I sort of agree with that thesis. Church planting is the, is the heart of missionary work. And the missionary is the sent one. The one who goes and lives in a land that's not his or her own. However, I think it goes without saying that no missionary can go unless they are sent by others, right? And, and none can... Sent ones need senders, we would say, both in the power of prayer, as we've spoken just briefly about, and in the provision of the purse as well for their own day-to-day -day needs. So... In deference to the new book, we could say that not all of us are missionaries in the sent one aspects of service and mission, but to clarify, certainly all of us are who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are on a mission. Or better yet, we, we could technically say we have a, a co-mission, a co-mission from the Lord to reach all parts of the world, all the nations. And this is a real privilege, a real privilege for all of us. That God would use us in his global purposes. Think about that. That God, the God of the universe who can do anything, anything within his character, of course, that he chose to use his redeemed people to take the message of redemption to others. That's a very humbling proposition. So perhaps then it would be better to say that not all of us have missionary DNA, but all of us at least have missions DNA as believers. We are all part of the task of seeing the gospel go forth in lands that aren't our own. Missions in France looks a little differently, of course, than other lands because you don't build schools and put up water wells and... Uh, teach a language that hasn't been taught before and those things as you might envision some areas of the world needing missionaries. All of those things are already in place in France, but they certainly need the good news of the gospel to go to that generation and to hear the gospel, the power of the gospel to reach the ears of those who then the Holy Spirit works upon their hearts and they respond in belief and trust in the one who gave his very life for his people. Some of you might not see France as a mission field. 
It's modern. It's industrialized. It's not like the jungle, except Paris can be a jungle. In fact, you know, they have food and clothing. In fact, they're noted for their culinary and their fashion industries. France is not a place that, for the most part, needs that preparatory missions work. There's certainly an influx of those in France, refugees that do need help, and missionaries are trying to meet those needs. But all along, having a church planter next to them, beside them, helping them, coming along, they actually are helping the church planter in many ways. Because God has chosen to use this entity we're all sitting in today, not the building, but all of us together, the church, as his, as his means to spread the gospel to the world. One quick comment about the, the need of France, and you'll get more of this Wednesday, but France is 1% evangelical. To put that in perspective, I looked up the uh, 2016 census of Kelowna. This didn't count the west side. It said 147,000, but I know it's grown. And if you count the west side, let's just for, for sake of um, rounding off about, say, 200,000 people. In France, there's one evangelical church available. There's access to one evangelical church for every 58,000 people. That means if this town and west side and this area were in France, there are a lot of big towns like, or big cities like this in France, or medium-sized cities, you would have about three evangelical churches and maybe working on a fourth. So maybe one on the west side, right, and a couple on this side. So that's the, that's the, if you hope that helps you get the picture of, of what France looks like, and I'll show you more about that um, later. So France is truly unreached. It's unreached. Western Europe is actually the, the mission field to come. It's the, it's the frontier in many ways of, of mission. Let me give you an, another example. If you were to, if we were all to be, everyone in the, the visible church today or the, every true believer today, just right now as it stands, were to stand around the throne of the Lord worshiping Him at this point in time, there would be a few of us Western, uh, East, Western European descent, which is most of us here, not all of us, I'm sure, around the throne. There would be a great many number of South Americans, even more Africans, and even more Asians, particularly Chinese and Indians. There would be so many, many more at this point in time. So we make up a very small portion of what God is doing around the world at this point in time. So Western, the Western world, the once cradle of Christianity, now needs to be reached. And a lot of the French-speaking people in the world are going back from those areas I just mentioned, from Africa and from the Caribbean, and are going back to France and, and reaching with the French language and English as well, has spoken quite a bit there, to reach France. Kids. I saw a few. A lot of girls. I saw one boy up here. I think I'd stay in the church for about 10, 15 more years if I were him. And he might, anyway, young man, 
Glad to see you wherever you are. I can't. And you girls too. And, and if there's any older, older um, young people, on Wednesday, you know, you, I'll have something for you as well to, to tell you about France. A lot of kids like to hear about France for a lot of reasons, but we want to we wanna teach them about missions as well. I will say this, just in mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, your kids, some of them are going to leave this week or the next time a missionary comes and they're going to, uh, they're going to say, I think I can do that. I want to do that. I want to go. I want to serve. I want to see. And I want to stay. And they'll become prepared through their days as they grow up and go. And the one hindrance they don't need at that point is mom and dad and grandma and grandpa saying, don't go. Don't go. What are we going to do at Christmas? That's the one thing that the kingdom of God does not need. And I know it's hard. And I've heard this story a lot. This is why I, I tell you this story. Because the needs are so great. It's not to say the needs are not great here in Canada. We know they are. And some God will call majority of our kids right here to be productive members of the church in Canada or in my case, the United States. But, let them go. Well, let go of them and then let them go. I think uh, they're not ours. They're not ours. They're, God. they're ours for a stewardship for 18, maybe 20, 22 years. And then let them go. I plead. I plead with you to let them go. So all of us who are believers are called to be involved in some way because all of us who are believers have been given a, a new spiritual DNA, a missions DNA. So today we'll learn, just briefly as we go through some of the scripture, how God has put into our very being, into our new life, into our new spiritual DNA, we might say as believers, a heart that desires to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to a world that so desperately needs to hear the good news. Uh, point uh, two on our outline after the introduction is, is what I call a biblical theology of missions. For those of you who don't know what biblical theology is, it's, it's, a, it's a study that takes a, a con, uh, some of the content of the scripture, a certain uh, part of the scripture, and it, it traces it through the scripture as from Genesis to Revelation and we don't have time to do that today so we won't even attempt that we'll just hit hit the high points um, we'll discover that there are certain underlying assumptions that God reveals to us in his word about everyone he calls to faith in Jesus Christ and about the relationship to the task of missions or to mission to their commission. So if you turn to Genesis 1, 28, wouldn't you know you start a biblical theology right at Genesis 1? If you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis 1. And I'm reading out of the English Standard Version, so please, uh, if you may, read along in a different English translation. That's fine as well. You should be able to pick up uh, most readily what's being taught there. 
This is in the garden, and it's God speaking with Adam. Genesis 1.28, just one verse. God blessed them, that's Adam and Eve, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Adam and Eve's initial mission actually was to bring God's rule, right, his dominion, over the creation. We'll call this our initial mission, if we could principalize this a little bit to our own setting. This was not just one of the many aspects of the work of God, that the work that God gave them actually in the garden before the fall. Remember, this is before the fall into sin, but this was actually the work that he gave them to do, to expand his kingdom, rule, his authority. We won't turn there, but in Genesis 8 and 9, he actually, after the flood, after the fall and after the flood, he gives Noah the very exact same commission as he gave Adam and Eve. Almost the exact same words as these. So it's not dependent or independent of the fall into sin or not. So as part of their DNA as perfect image bearers of God, at least in the case of the garden, it was, it was part of Noah's DNA as a fallen but redeemed image bearer of God as well. This mission was, was first creation oriented, obviously with Adam and Eve before the fall, and then it's redemption oriented after the fall but it still involved bringing God's rule to the whole earth which we now help to do right as we proclaim the gospel over the whole world so today when you send missionaries to the whole earth they're participating in God's not creation mandate but in his redemption we might say in his recreation in his redemption, in his renewal, his extending of his reign through the message of the good news of Jesus Christ and spreading the kingdom upon the earth to the nations. This, this gospel transforms the spiritual DNA of his chosen people then to its, its original pattern. Now we know that's a process now, right, before the Christ returns. It's not a perfect um, transformation. We, we're still growing in His grace. And of course, at one, at one sometime in the future, that process will be complete as we then are then reestablished, redeemed, recreated uh, in our full and final sense. So the spiritual genetic disorder, if I could call it that, which we now see all around us, due to sin, due to the fall into sin caused by Adam and Eve, this, this disorder and all the effects of sin, it's being replaced. It's being replaced as the Holy Spirit replaces and renews and reworks our old DNA by the power of the gospel. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? New. New. A new creature, a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We are given a new, a renewed DNA with a, a task of mission, which is very intricately combined with that new life that we have 
were made new by the Holy Spirit. This was part of who we were originally in Adam and it's part of now who we're becoming in the second Adam in, in Jesus Christ. This was our initial mission. Turn now, if you will, to Genesis 12. Genesis 12. We've gone forward in history a bit. And we get to the story of Abram, or Abraham, as he became known. Abram in Genesis 12. I'm just going to read the first three verses of Genesis 12, but we'll focus on the third verse in a moment. Genesis 12:1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. There, there's, a, there's the mission's call, right? Or the, the, he, his missionary uh, task that God has given to him. Verse 2, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and in him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families or the nations of the earth will be blessed. I'm going to say this is part of what makes our continuing mission, not our initial mission, but our continuing mission. God, God says to Abraham basically here, Abraham, leave what you know to be familiar. Leave your old home, leave your old life, leave your old hometown, and come to Jesus. Well, no, not exactly in those words, right? He says what? Come to the land. Come to the land. It's sort of an Old Testament way of saying, come to Jesus prospectively, looking ahead, looking forward to when he comes, the, 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 the promise, the seed of promise. Come to the land. And of course we know for, for many other places in Scripture that one of the results of Abraham's going to the land, of carrying out this commission that he was given, was that that faith, that trust in that promise, looking ahead before Jesus, looking forward, that faith in that promise... Paul says it was credited, that faith was what? Credited or imputed, that's the technical word, as righteousness. The righteousness of God. He was counted righteous before God, not a sinner, based not on what he did, but based on what he believed, on the faith that he had, the prospective view of looking forward to Christ by faith. But look at his distinct purpose after he went to the land in the end of verse 3. And in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. How will that blessing come about? Well, for sake of saving time, basically Abraham's physical descendants will be born, right? Through Isaac, Jacob, the twelve. And through them... The blessing of the nations will come at just the right time, Paul says, in the one Jesus Christ, born of a woman, born under the law, yet to redeem those under the law from the curse of the law. Reaching out to and blessing the nations was part of Abraham's new DNA from the get-go. Missions was actually not an option for him to consider. It was an assumption stemming from who he was as a new creation in Christ. Can I say that again? 
missions actually was not reaching out in this way to the nations was not was not an assumption or excuse me was not a an option it was an assumption stemming from who he was as a new creature in Christ this is our continuing mission could you turn to the psalms now psalm 96 psalm 96 I've jumped quite a few years now in biblical history, as I said. I would love to go through the whole scripture from Genesis to Revelation, but uh, you all might need a lunch break if we did that, so we won't. We'll do Psalm, uh, did I say 96? I meant 67 if I said 96. I'm sorry. We'll come back to Psalm 96. Psalm 67. This I'm just going to call our, our mission purpose. We saw our initial mission, our continuing mission. This psalm really sums up in a very succinct way our mission purpose. Let me begin to read. I'll just comment as we read. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face shine upon us. Selah. That you should be familiar with those words maybe from Numbers, right? Numbers, it's the, it's the blessing of the priest that in Numbers were given to the people of God. And um, it says, may God, it's, a, it's like a prayer. It's also a statement. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. Could I just argue that God has done that for us believer in Christ? He has made His face shine upon us in Christ. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, you don't have to turn there yet. We're going to turn in a little, in just a moment. But God said, Let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. He has shone upon us. He has blessed us and made His face shine upon us in Jesus. And then verse 2 is very important. I don't know if Pastor John talks to you about the that's or the so that's in Scripture. But if he doesn't, remind him to, remember, to remind you to, to, to look at the so that's. They give the result of something that God has done. God made his face shine upon us in Jesus Christ, in the face of Jesus Christ for his glory. And then, verse 2, so that... We can all feel better about ourselves. No. So that your way, God, may be known on earth. Your saving power among all the nations. To me, that's a purpose of missions. Giving us a new missionary DNA. And then what happens when His way is known on the earth as saving power among the people? Let all the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let all the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. So God's plan is never is never for His good news people to, to hoard up and hide the good news, correct? We are, we are actually called from day one to, 
as the face of God shines upon us in the glory of Jesus Christ, we are called from day one to display the glory of God in our lives so that God's saving power will, will cause all the peoples, all the nations to praise Him, give Him glory, give honor due only Him alone. That's the real purpose of missions then, is that God is, is given praise and honor and glory for the great things that He has done through His Son. Our initial, our continuing, and our purpose for mission. Now, I don't know if we have any high schoolers in here. I know it's summer break. But you know a bit about DNA if you're old enough, probably in 10th grade, biology class or whatever. And, and I know you older folks hopefully will know a little bit about DNA. DNA is a very important molecule, right, in every cell that we have. It's a... a in technical terms, you'll have to excuse me, I come from a science background, I'm engineering and science background, but DNA is this zipper type molecule, it's called a double helix to get really technical, and it unzips and it has on the zipper, you know like you have your zippers kids, each one of those little points on the zipper are amino acids, and there's only four amino acids that make up the whole DNA molecule. And all, all the combinations of those on that zipper make up your chromosomes, your genes, and whatnot. That's the information that God has planted in our cells, in the DNA. And these four amino acids, in no particular order, are named uh, cytosine or cytosine, adenine, thymine, or thymine, and, and guanine, or guanine. So think of the first letter, C, a, T, and G, in no particular order. Those four, those amino acids. Now, in the time we have left this morning, what I want to do is, you, you've kind of seen how, the, how God has worked in the DNA, the new spiritual DNA of every believer throughout part of Scripture anyway, this mission, commission mindset, right? His, of, of who they are who God has made them as believers. But what I want to do is, what does it look like to take that shining glory of God in the face of Jesus to the entire world, to all the nations? What kind of life will you and I lead? What kind of life does God call us to, to, to live out our new DNA, which God has worked within us? So part three of our outline today is just our missions DNA, C-A-D. And I'm, I'm going to use those first letters for our outline if you are taking notes. If you will, turn to first, 2 Corinthians. I told you we would go back there. Turn to 2 Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians 4. As you're turning there, we're actually going to just read one verse today. It's verse 7. As you're turning there, I need to give you a little background of, of this passage in this book. The background of this verse is Paul's discussion of his ministry as an apostle of the New Covenant, his New Covenant ministry as an apostle. And the Corinthians were giving Paul a really hard time. If you read the whole book of some of 1 Corinthians as well, but particularly 2 Corinthians, they were giving Paul a very hard time after he had left them and when he was on his way back the second time. Because they thought 
his ministry as an apostle looked really weak, really anemic from the outside as they judged it, as they saw it. They were saying something like this, if I could get into their minds and maybe read between the lines. They were saying, the nerve of Paul for being weak and anemic and perplexed and afflicted and persecuted and struck and throwing a few shipwrecks and, and carrying around in his body what looked like death warmed over. And he even says that in chapter 5. You know, I, I, I know I look like death to you. All he had to go through as a missionary to the Gentiles, this is not what we signed up for, Paul, as believers. This is not the way we think the gospel should be proclaimed, Paul. Not the way you look. This is way too hard. The Corinthians, on the other hand, actually, if they, they came out of their culture, to them, they were looking at the gospel, really, as a way to power and prestige and honor and self-glory, and success, and prosperity, and ease. That might sound familiar. Canadians, Americans. But Paul is telling them that believers in Jesus take the gospel to the world in these jars of clay. Let's read. We have this treasure, this gospel message, this good news in earthen rare vessels in jars of clay here's the so that in order to show that the surpassing power of the transforming power of the gospel belongs to God and not to us Paul is telling them that Believers in Jesus take the gospel to the world in jars of clay, in earthen vessels, breakable vessels. Frail? Yes, but we minister the power of God to the world, the gospel of God. You know what? It's a good thing that this is the way God chose to take his message in our frail new DNA. It's not going to be frail forever, folks, okay? But right now it is. The last thing that will be defeated is this frailty. When death will be no more permanently. However, he chose to take the gospel through us, through these fail bodies. And that's a good thing because then all our sufficiency, all the power, all the glory, all the honor for what at times seems to be an overwhelming task. All of that comes to and from and in and through the power of Christ. Not our own strength. We depend on Christ and Him alone as missionaries and as believers who are missionaries. So part of our DNA is we are made of clay. We are made of clay. That's the C. At least for now we are. We don't have kryptonite DNA. 
So we go take the gospel to our neighborhoods and to our workplaces, to our families, and to other parts of the world, either by giving or going. Our success lies wholly and only in Jesus Christ and on Him alone. When we are weak, Paul later says in this letter, then we are strong. Your grace is sufficient for me. That's the proper attitude that springs forth from our new missionary DNA as we take the gospel to our world, each and every one of us. Could you, I'm going to skip one passage, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says he doesn't come in, in a great speech. The Corinthians wanted him to come as a great rhetorician, a great speaker. He comes, in fact, what in weakness and in trembling, he says there, so that the sufficiency that the work of God is not His, but it's God's work. The last thing we want to do is when we go out is smooth talk, right? And fancy presentations that result in what? Only temporary conversions. Can I put it in a parentheses at best, right? That, that is not our task. Our task is to proclaim the gospel that the Holy Spirit use the Word of God to change the hearts of men and women around the world in the nations. It is Christ, Him crucified, that the world needs to hear. And they need someone who has died to grant them forgiveness of sin, not to remove everything that's difficult for them, but to grant them forgiveness. They need a Savior. They need someone who will soothe their souls in the way that only the Lord Jesus Christ can do for them. They need to hear the message of the foolishness of the cross to change their foolish hearts to true wisdom. And you know what? All of you fools out there know that, right? You know that we needed the wisdom of God in Christ not our own foolish way of wisdom of the world. So clay. Clay puts off a certain aroma. Some might like it, some don't. So go, maybe you know, I don't even have to turn the page, but look at 2 Corinthians 2, verse 14. This is the second part of our DNA, adenine, or we put forth an aroma. Verse 14. But thanks be be to God who, is, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God, going up to God, among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Every man smells us as we take the message of the gospel. Smells us, the message, metaphorically speaking. To one... To one were the fragrance from death to death, to the other were the fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? The Apostle Paul describes himself as one of those captives in the, in the Roman triumph, right? In the Roman parade. And he's describing himself as he's uh, in the back of the line, stepping on the pedals, and those pedals go up, and some of those, for the victors, Smell, that smells great, but that smell for the ones who are being led behind the parade to be 
many of them executed as the Roman prisoners, that smell is death. So Paul uses that picture to talk about what happens when we proclaim the gospel to the world around us. To some it smells like roses. Like a rose, right? Who died for us. To others, it smells like death because we stand before the law of God judged and condemned as sinners and we know that, but yet, at, the, at least at that point in time, Christ has not opened our eyes to see. And someday, maybe He will. Through the very message that His clay-filled, smelly messengers bring, right? Only God can do the, the surgery on the nose. This truth, by the way, that, that we proclaim the gospel and it goes up in thanksgiving to God and then it goes out to others, how we smell is, not a, is actually not a f part of who we are now in our new DNA. What we smell like is actually has to do with the one who is smelling the truth that we bring, the gospel. And that truth, by the way, as God transforms noses and hearts and lives and they smell the gospel, they respond to faith in Jesus Christ, that truth that it's God that does that is an extremely great lifter of the burden of those of us, all of us, who go forth with the gospel and who send others to the global mission of God. It's our job to work together to proclaim the good news of Christ. It's God's prerogative to mix the fragrance, right? Change each person's capacity to smell their olfactory glands so the message is then received correctly and then they put their trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. That doesn't mean we don't take the message just because God does the operation. The message is part of the means that God uses to do that. Operation. That's God's sovereign mission. His sovereign mission. So believers were missionaries of clay, were sweet perfume to God's people and to God Himself. But to others, eh, at least now, we don't smell so sweet. So along with these bodies of clay that have an aroma, our minds have been thinking. We just have a few more minutes. Could you turn to Romans 12? Go back a few pages to Romans 12. Our minds have been transformed. What I'm going to do is just read this passage and comment a little bit as we read the first about eight verses. I find this a very unique passage because the way it fits together just sort of uh, struck me a, a few months ago. We all know that God has, is transforming our way of thinking as believers, our mind, as part of our new DNA, but the reason why He's transforming our way of thinking is interesting to me in this passage. Verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers by the mercies of God to present your bodies, these clay bodies, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect or complete. So that's our, our mind is being transformed as we give ourselves to the worship of God. And all we do and everything we do, we give glory to God and worship. But, what's happening when our minds become transformed? Well, there's a lot of things happening, but in this particular passage, there's one interesting thing that's happening beginning in verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So one of the things that happens when our mind is being transformed by the Spirit of God as we give ourselves in worship to God is we begin to think humbly about our service our spiritual service of worship to God. We get, begin to see ourselves the way God would want us to see ourselves. And that's important because the, now the main topic of this little passage is once we begin to see ourselves humbly, we can then be used by God to be um, an important part of the service in the body of Christ, in the church. Read on. For in one body we have many members, and the members of, do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. So we see ourselves humbly, and we see that God has given us gifts to use for this body, this visible church that He uses to take the gospel the good news of His saving grace in Jesus Christ, he, he then uses us to take that in various ways. And this is not a comprehensive list. In fact, some of these were just for part of the time in redemptive history that before we had the scripture, but let me read them. If prophecy, proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in His teaching, the one who exhorts in His exhortation, the one who contributes generously, the one who leads with zeal, the one who's running the ship or guiding the ship, so to speak, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. He lists some of the, the gifts that God gives each and every person in the visible church, the body of Christ. So they, they, they give, we give ourselves in worship we're then trans as our mind is transformed, we begin to think humbly about who we are in our place in the church, and then we begin to use our gifts to serve God. When God remakes and renews us, continues to renew our, our believers' DNA, we will long to find that place in His plan, which is carried out by His church. Now, as you look at these gifts and things and graces are called, God gives in this passage, I imagine one or more of these excites you, helps you wake up in the morning, gets you out of bed, so to speak, as you go about your workplaces, your schools, your homes, wherever God has placed you to spread His good news, the life-transforming gospel message.
you all have no doubt certain gifts that God has given you in this body. Some of you teach. Some of you exhort. Some of you encourage. Some of you give above and beyond. Some of you can't wait to be merciful to those in need. Now, all of us are responsible for those things as Christians, but God in His wisdom built into our bodies, both individually and, and corporately as His church, the right mix of transformed DNA. We're now able to think clearly about what pleases God and then humbly serve his bodies with our own bodies. That's the T, our transformed thinking. Finally, I told you we'd get to Psalm 96, so we will. Let's turn there and we'll close today in Psalm 96. We have C, A, and T, and now we have G. G, Psalm 96. Our new, our new DNA forms us as clay as we carry the gospel to others. It gives us a sweet aroma as we proclaim the gospel to others. It helps us think clearly so that we know how best to be used by God as members of His body, known as the church. And lastly, our DNA believers allows us to walk to the glory of God. His glory, to walk to the glory of God. And I'll just read this with a few brief comments before we close our time in prayer. I wish I could do the whole uh, psalm in detail, but we'll just do a few brief comments as we read. The, the idea is here, we walk to the glory of God with this transformed DNA. By the way, before I read it, some, some theologians have, uh, they've kind of defined the task of missions that we see that God has given us people throughout the scripture, they, they actually define this as an overarching purpose is to bring glory to God alone. All we do is for His glory, therefore all we do is for His mission. The mission purpose of God is to bring Him glory. Here we, here we see God's overarching and sovereign purpose for mission. Sing to the Lord a new song. <clears throat> we have some good new voices as well, it looks like, from our new DNA. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless His name. Let His salvation, or excuse me, tell of His salvation from day to day. Hebrew word there is a bring his good tidings, his, spread his glad tidings every day from day to day in every place that God puts us. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among the peoples. There's sort of the, that's sort of the message we take in a nutshell, isn't it? Who God is 
in all his splendid glory. When you see the glory, glory has a lot of different meanings, uh, nuances in the Old Testament, but part of what glory means is everything that God is wrapped up in one big package and it's his glory. All of his attributes wrapped up declare the glory of God. Not only that he is to be glorified, but who he is in all of his many different um, facets. Declare his glory to the nations. And then, what else do we declare? His works among the peoples. What he has done. Again, we now know, living where we live in redemptive history, we declare what? The, the work that all the Old Testament pointed to. Jesus Christ and him crucified and risen from the dead. Ascending to the Father, sitting at the right hand, pleading our case, interceding for us, soon to come again. Declare all that he has done in Jesus Christ. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are his, in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O peoples, glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. If we were to read on the psalm at the end, even we see the effects of on the inanimate creation of the glory of God. The heavens are glad, verse 11. The earth rejoices. The sea roars and all that fills it. The fields exalt and everything in it. The trees sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, he comes to judge the earth in righteousness. I pray that the Lord would be with you as you go to school, to work. Some of you maybe to other ministries that you do right from this local body. And that you would go with this idea of God giving you this mission's DNA to reach out. And I pray that you would go with this thoughts about what this looks like in our lives as we take the gospel to our world. And God is our strength. He is our sufficiency. He is our power. And all glory goes to him. We walk to the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for this day. We thank you for the, the wonders of your of your son's redemption, atonement for us. We praise you now with a new voice, Lord. We sing to you a new song because we have new hearts and new lives. We have a new purpose. We have a great eternal purpose. And Lord, we're, we're just humbled by the fact that you bring us the ability to, to enter in to that purpose that's yours that you would bring us along as senders and sent ones into your world, both here locally in Kelowna and across the sea in France and wherever you would take us, Lord. We are, we are humbled by that. 
And we thank you in Christ's name.